0: You guys, kids can be dismissed at this time. Well, good morning. So if you have your copy of Scripture, you can go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 9. And we are now on the seventh plague, 7 of 10. And so we're beginning the last sequence of three. If you remember, we kind of compartmentalized them. We see these um, patterns within the 10 plagues um, where... God tells Moses to go before Pharaoh, to go into Pharaoh, in other words, into his courts. And then there is a plague that struck without any confrontation with Pharaoh at all. So we saw that with the first three. We saw it with the second three. And today begins the last sequence of the third three. And then, of course, the tenth one stands as just an awesome, devastating uh, plague within it of, it of itself so it's kind of like stands out as its own and there's so much imagery there So we're gonna save that for when we get to it But today we find ourselves in plague number seven. We also find ourselves on like Neil was saying earlier this is the day of Pentecost and there's a lot of uh, connection between Pentecost and the actual story of the Exodus and we'll talk about that in a moment as I kind of blend it into what we're gonna look at today Uh, But just kind of give you an idea, Pentecost, uh, the Hebrew word is shavu. You can say that with me. Shavu, yeah. Shavu uh, means weeks, Uh, and it's actually a festival of weeks because there are seven, seven weeks. Okay, so seven days, if you will. Seven days is a week. And if you take seven of those, seven times seven, who's somebody who's good at math? It is what? 49. And then you add one day to that, and it is? 50, which is the word Pentecost. That's what it means. So the Greek word is Pentecost. The Hebrew word is Shavuot. The reason we call it Pentecost is it's literally 50 days. The reason that we celebrate Pentecost, a lot of people, if you're very familiar with the New Testament, not so familiar with the Old Testament, um, then you may not know the significance of Pentecost. Why 50 days? 50 days, literally, after Passover ends, you have the Feast of Firstfruits, and it's 50 days. They call it counting the omer, counting the measure of days till you get to 50, because it took the Israelites, when they were freed from Egypt, it took them 50 days to get to Mount Sinai. And that's where God delivered his word to them. So that's the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost is because it is a celebration of God giving his word to the people. So it's this revelation of God on the mountain. Okay? So we're going to pull all that into what we're going to talk about today. But let's kind of set the context of where we've been. As we've looked at these miracles, these, these plagues, these wonders... What we have seen is that they are miraculous. They're miraculous in their fulfillment. In other words, when you see what happens, it happens in such totality and such devastation and such completion that there's no doubt that this is the work of God. It's not like just something comes through for a little while. I mean, when it rains down, it rains down and it covers the land of Egypt. It is miraculous and awesome in the way it comes down. It's also miraculous in its prediction. You see several times where Moses comes in and says, tomorrow this is going to start, and then tomorrow this will end. And even one time where he says to Pharaoh, you tell me when you want it to end. You name it, and that's when it's going to happen. And that's exactly what happens. So it's miraculous in its inception and its conclusion, and it shows this complete control that God has over each one of these plagues. It's also miraculous in its timing because... Every one of them is so picture perfect in the way that it flows as a narrative and it flows as a story. We also see this intensity with each one of the plagues. We see where it starts off with these major inconveniences. The Nile turns to blood. There's nothing to drink. There's nothing to wash with for a week. Um, Then we see the frogs come in. You just... Huge inconvenience. They're in the bed, they're in the bedroom, they're in the bowls that we make bread with. I mean, just all over the place. Then we see the the annoyance of flies, and then we get to the biting flies, and then we get to the devastation of the cattle. And then, of course, today we see the first actual death of humanity. So, this is the first time that we know of in, in the whole sequence of the plagues that people. Are dead because of the visitation of the plague. So we see this growing intensity as we go through each plague. Um, There's also a focus and an exclusion with each one. There's a focus on a specific God of Egypt or gods of Egypt that they believe control these different elements. And there's also this exclusion in the sense of as we get midway through this, God says this is not going to happen in the land of Goshen. This will happen in the land of Egypt. So there is this My people and your people that begins to develop. The people of Pharaoh or the people of Egypt and the people of God. And there's distinction that is made. And I think it's a beautiful thing because you say, well, did this happen from the very beginning? We don't know, but I think it's pretty amazing that it doesn't even tell us until about midway because there's this picture of we're all in this together, then all of a sudden there's this drawing out. And the drawing out is the people of God and the people of Egypt, and the people of God are the ones that are beginning to understand and believe and trust, and then the people of Egypt are the ones who are beginning to harden their heart and stand firm in their defiance and rebellion against God, and so the situations and crisis actually continues to make two different groups, which is so true about salvation in our own life. Whenever you see the Word of God preached, beginning uh, with people who may be in the same state of mind, same culture, then what happens is the preaching of God's Word begins to create two groups, those who listen and those who don't. Those who heed and those who become stubborn in their mind and in their heart. And so every time we see God enacting himself on humanity, we see a distinction between two groups. And the ones who listen are the ones called wise and the ones who are listening to the word of God and the ones who respond. And those who are foolish are the ones who don't listen, who who steady themselves in their stubbornness and they defy God. Jesus tells many parables about the difference of those two. The Psalms are replete with so many different examples of the foolish and the wise. And they all center around those who hear what God says and they do it. And the ones that are foolish are the ones who hear what God says and they don't do it. So again, keep that in mind as we go through this because you see these same elements coming through even in this plague here. Now, there is more text dedicated to this plague than any of the others. And the reason is because... He explains a few things here in greater detail. It's not that the plague lasted longer or there were more elements to it. He's given us more background of why the plagues existed to begin with. In other words, what was the purpose of the plagues? And what you're going to find as we go through this is that the purpose of the plagues was, number one, demonstrating how disobedient Pharaoh really was. In other words, how hard of a heart he really has and that hardness of heart again it's important to understand what the heart means to Egyptians versus what it means to us for us when we talk about the heart we're talking about the seat of emotion because we'll say "Oh, that moved my heart or how oh, that broke my heart or that moved my heart we're talking about emotions that we feel Um, The Egyptians did not think of the heart that way. They thought of it as authority. They think of the heart as the central activity of your entire body. Without your heart you can't live. You can live without your brain in a, to a degree in the sense that you could be brain dead and yet everything else in your body still works. Why? Because your heart's still pumping blood. So that pump to get that oxygenated blood throughout the rest of your body is central to our existence. Therefore, for the Egyptians, the heart represents authority. So the highest authority in Egypt is Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's heart is a picture of the highest authority in Egypt, which is why the text keeps telling us about the condition of Pharaoh's heart. Because that is, in essence, a representation of Egypt itself. So again, all of these help us to understand a little bit more about what's going on behind the story as we read it. Uh, The second thing is this. The story is about God saving his people. So God made a promise to Abraham very early on in Genesis and he comes to this moment where he makes this promise to Abraham in this very dramatic way and it's what we would call a unilateral covenant. You know, a bilateral covenant is when you know, maybe the United States and Russia come to an agreement and they say, if you do this, then we'll do this. That's bilateral. In other words, both people have responsibility. Unilateral is when one person comes forward and says, I'm going to do this regardless of what you agree to. So God enters into this unilateral covenant with Abraham. In other words, it has nothing to do with you, Abraham. You don't have to do anything to make this come about. I'm making this promise on my own behalf and on my own honor, and I'm going to follow through with that. Now, here's what's amazing. When you go all the way back to Genesis and you hear God giving this impassioned, beautiful picture of this promise for this man who who really has no children of his own to to speak of, that he's going to become this, this, this father of many many descendants, so many that they're going to outnumber the sand on the shore, so many that they will outnumber the stars in the sky, God also tells him what's going to happen with them. You can go all the way back there and read it, but he tells them literally when he has this moment, he says, you will have descendants that will be that numerous, but they will also be oppressed in a land that's not their own, and they will be so for over 400 years, But after that, at a time, I will come and I will deliver them with a mighty hand. And I will bring them out of their oppression, and I will bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey. The land that I have promised you, I will give to them. So think about that in a moment. God promises Abraham something that he knows is going to happen, yet God is all-powerful, but he doesn't stop it from happening. Why? because there's a bigger story here. If it's all about our comfort and us just being saved and us not going through any difficulty, then God would have never allowed them to go into Egypt. He would have never allowed them to go into any kind of slavery. He would have never allowed them to get in that situation where he would have to rescue them. So it tells us, again, there is this bigger, deeper, complicated, yet simple picture of God's um, relationship with his people, with his chosen people. And that is actually a foreshadowing of his relationship with us. And as we go through the rest of this in Exodus, you're going to see that more and more. So that's the saving of his people. The third thing is this. God enacts the plagues for his own renown. Now, this is the one I want to spend the most time on today because this is a new concept. Not really a new concept, but... Moses really spends more time writing about this in this plague than he does all the rest of them. He has hinted at it, given us a little foreshadowing of it earlier, but now he says it the most blatantly that he says it. That the reason that there are 10 plagues is because God is demonstrating who he is for the benefit of the entire world. It is for his great renown, so that his name will go forth throughout the earth. Now, I want you to see this as we read our text here for today. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, again, we see the beginning of that sequence, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we've done it in the past, but I just want to remind you, look how consistent God is with what he says he's going to do. He doesn't waver. He doesn't change. He doesn't up the ante. He doesn't compromise. He just says, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I've said from the beginning. I'm not compromising it. I'm not asking for more than what I said at the beginning. I'm not asking for less. This is what I'm doing. God is unchanging In his direction for us. Because he knows what he wants for us. He says thus says the Lord. The God of the Hebrews. Let my people go. My people. That distinction there as well. That they may serve me. A purpose in being let go. The the whole point of being let go. Is not freedom itself. It is literally to come under. The bondage of God. Now you say, well, that that sounds bad. That's because you have a bad perspective of what bondage under God is maybe. Because bondage under God is the most freeing thing you can possibly experience. Did you know every single one of us are created to be in bondage? Every single one of us. It's a part of our human constitution. Go all all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And it says that man was created to be a subservient ruler not not a sovereign ruler but a subservient what does that mean we were always created to be in service to something higher than ourselves now when you deny god as that higher power, then you go and find that higher power in some other way, whether it's yourself or whether it's an activity, a hobby, whether it's achieving some things, whether it's academic or athletics, or maybe it's just making money, uh, being successful in that aspect of it, maybe being successful in family, whatever it may be, you dedicate yourself to something else. And if, and if you really sit down and, and put a pen to paper and describe what it is, it's called service. You are serving something. You are serving an ideal. You are serving a principle. You're giving your time and your talents towards those things. And what Scripture keeps pointing us to is there's only one thing worthy of that, and that's God. God is the only thing worthy of our time and our talents and our resources. He's the only one worthy of our trust and our faith. Now, after we have that situated, we can then give trust and faith outside of that to other people. But at first, it has to be situated with Him or else the whole thing becomes perverse. And that's what Scripture keeps telling us over and over again. Look how it continues, verse 14. For this time, I will send all of my plagues on yourself and on your servants And your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. In other words, there's nothing excluded in totality. Pharaoh, you're going to experience this. Your servants are going to experience this. And your people are going to experience this. Verse 15. For by now, this is the important part. Pay attention to this verse. By now, seven plagues into this, I could have, God says, put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, you'd have been dead. And my people could have just walked out, plundered all of Egypt, took all the resources with them, and just walked out. I could have done that. But look at the rest of it. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name May be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, that's the part that's unique. That's the part that makes this plague different than the rest of them because that has not been articulated like that in any of the rest of the plagues. Now, it has been alluded to, it's been talked about in some form or fashion, but here it is blatant. God says, I have stretched this out for one purpose, and that is that my name may be great. There's not 10 plagues because it took 10 to rescue my people. I could have rescued them in one. There's not 10 plagues because your gods are so strong that, that I have to fight each one of them individually. No, I could have wiped out, annihilated every one of them if I wanted to. The purpose behind this story, behind this sequence of events is one thing, that my name and my renown will be known throughout the earth. Do you know what renown means? The best way I can describe it is um, renown is when you see something and without a whole lot of introduction, you know exactly what that is. Okay? I could maybe put a picture of someone up on the screen And if you immediately recognize them, that's a person who has renown. In other words, they may not live here, they may not be in this community, but you immediately recognize them. Why? Because their name has gone forth. You know something about them. Uh, Here's a great illustration. You know what the Coke bottle looks like, right? You know, the old Coke bottle, the glass ones, you know, how it has that little kind of figure with it where it comes out, comes back in, the glass, and it has the little, like, sections of it. Um, it has that little logo right around the middle of it. and has that you know, unique little glass top, the little lip that the cap fits onto. So you, you can picture that in your mind. Do you know that you could probably take that bottle into almost any country in the entire world, take the label off of it and hold it up, and everyone will know that's Coca-Cola. That's a co-. Why? Because Coca-Cola made it their passion and their direction to make the renown and the name of that drink to be known throughout the earth. And you know what? They were successful at it. So successful that there are actually places on the earth that you could hold up that Coke bottle and they would know exactly what that is and you could hold up a cross and they've never heard of it. That's what it means to live for the name and renown of something. And that's in essence what God is saying right here, that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. This is his idea of renown. Let me ask you a question. Do you live for the renown of God? Do you live for that? You say, well, what does that mean to live for the right now? Here's what it means. In essence, when, when you are immersed in that perspective, here's what happens. Every decision that you make, the first thing that you consider is how can God be most glorified and honored in this decision? doesn't matter how small the decision is. doesn't matter how big it is. And it doesn't mean that you're going through this little ceremonial question. It means it really becomes your thought process. Like everything that comes to you, you're like, maybe this is an opportunity that God's given to me for his name and his renown to be made great. You know, if you really want to, this is a little convicting, but if you really want to know, this is a great standard. If you want to know what you live for, what you put your faith in, there's two things that you can look at. How you spend your money, and how you spend your time. Those two things, no matter what you say you believe and what you say your faith is in, go look at those two things and that will tell you where your faith is. It will tell you what you believe in. It'll tell you where you're putting your trust. It'll tell you where you're finding your identity, where you're finding your purpose, it's those two things. Whatever you spend all your time doing or whatever you spend your money on, those are the things that you are gravitating towards. And a lot of times what happens is we do those things. We spend our time or our money without ever considering how is God's name being made great through this. Now, again, I'm not saying that you have to take everything that you make and go give it to the church or give it to a missionary. That's, that's not it. It's being a steward of those things. It's, your life may not look a whole lot different than it does now. You may have the same kind of car, the same kind of house. The difference is the process that you went through to get to that point. That you literally considered, how has this house been given to me to make God's name great? And you know what it mean. The house may not look different, but what you do in that house will be radically different. The kind of events that you have there. The kind of people that you invite over. That will be all different. Why? Because you're asking the question, why have I been given this? What can this be used for? How can God's name be made great through these things? Now, again, I'm not trying to make people super spiritual. It's all about perspective. It's all about the way you just begin to think. And we begin to think more and more like Scripture calls us to. Do we really live for the renown of God? See, the writers of Scripture quickly picked up on this aspect of Exodus, and they highlighted it often. In other words, right there, for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you know that we saw the realization of that right there very early on? Matter of fact, at the end of the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says to them, Then you shall say to your son... We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before your eyes. In other words, this story is going to be told to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. That's how God's name is going to be made great. Psalm 78, written much Later than the actual Exodus, Psalm 78 says, He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. Talking about the very plague that we're studying today. Exodus chapter 15, just a few chapters away from where we are right now. It says, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. What is the writer talking about? He's talking about when all these other people groups that live around Egypt have heard what God has done. They've trembled in fear at the name of Yahweh. His name is being made great. A little past even the wilderness wanderings as they go into the promised land, Joshua 9.9. They said to him, From a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. God's name is being made great. First Samuel chapter 4, verse 7. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, a god has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians at every sort of plague in the wilderness. What is he saying there? God's name has been made great. His renown is now going to all these other people groups. Now, that's not just contained in the Old Testament. It actually finds its way into the New Testament as well. Paul, in many of his writings, goes back and references the Exodus. Matter of fact, as he's writing one of the greatest books that he's ever written, as far as theological discourse goes, when he writes the book of Romans to the church in Rome, mostly a Gentile church, this is what he writes. Romans chapter 9 verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see where Paul quoted from? The very passage that we're studying here today. And Paul, talking to a Gentile group, is proclaiming the name and the renown of this God to, listen to this, the most powerful people on the face of the planet at his time. God demonstrates it, the most powerful people on the face of the earth at the time of the Exodus, Egypt. Paul then proclaims it thousands of years later before the Romans, the most powerful group on the face of the earth at that time, And how is it that we stand here in this little insignificant preacher at this insignificant church but yet in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth in our day and time is proclaiming the same exact truth. And you know what's amazing and what you need to pay attention to? Not that we live in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth in our day but this. Nations come and nations go but the name of God will last forever. Egypt is not the most powerful place on the face of the earth. Rome doesn't even exist anymore. And and I don't mean to be offensive or or talk negatively, but America's not going to be here forever. I think we can even see the crumbling of our society and our culture happening before our eyes. Now, can that be reversed? Absolutely. It can be reversed with, with a revival. It can be reversed with God changing the course of our culture. But if he doesn't step into it, we will go the same path as every other country that stood on top of a hill. And that is, our sovereignty doesn't exist. Why? Because we're servants. We always have been and we always will be. So the question is this, are you serving something for a brief period of time or are you serving something that's eternal and lasts forever? You see... The reason we're studying the book of Exodus right now is because as we sat down as teachers and said, you know, what are we going to do next? After we finish the book of John, where are we going next? And I just, I said to them, I know where we're going. We're going to the book of Exodus and here's why. Because after studying the book of John, what you saw is John used the Passover as the framework of writing his entire gospel. And I said, we keep referring to it, whether it's Romans or whether it's John or whether it's Ephesians. We keep referring back to this event that happened in Exodus. And yet, as a church, we've never studied the book of Exodus. We've got to go and get that story as a foundation because so much of the rest of Scripture comes back to this and touches this. That's why it's so powerful. Now, there is a powerful element that develops in this passage that we should pay attention to. And I believe it is the demonstration of God's grace in the midst of all of this. Look at verse 17. You are still exalting yourself, God speaking to Pharaoh here, against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Underline that, if you will, in your scripture has never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Look at verse 19. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field is not, It is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Now, I want you to pay attention to who he's talking to. God sends Moses and speaks this to Pharaoh. He says to Pharaoh... There's another plague coming. Now, we're on number seven, so you know I'm very consistent with these things. And everything that I've said that's going to happen has happened. This one's coming. And the grace in it is this. You don't have to have it fall on you. All you have to do is go put your cattle up and get your servants out of the field. And no individuals or animals will be hurt in all of this. So why in the world would you not follow that advice? It's not like you don't have a precedence to follow that advice. It would actually be very wise for you to follow it. There's only one reason, people. Only one reason you would not heed that warning. Because you are defiant, you are rebellious, and you're not going to have someone else tell you what you're going to do. And so Pharaoh leaves his servants and all of his cattle out in the field. And of course, you know the devastation that's coming in just a moment. Now, it's almost like this was set up to test and to really expose the heart of Pharaoh. What does it mean that Pharaoh had a hardened heart? It's exactly what it means. It means that even in an opportunity to respond, to save something that he has, something that he treasures, the stupidity of not listening and doing something, knowing you're going to lose, that's when you know that you have a rebellious heart and a rebellious spirit. Look how it continues in verse 20. Then, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. What's being depicted for us there? Here it is. There's these guys and they're sitting there and they're hearing this and they know what Moses has said to Pharaoh. These are his servants. These are his officials. They're standing in this area where Pharaoh is. They're hearing what Moses says. If they weren't there present, I I promise you they quickly found out as the ones who were present went and told everybody what happened. And there was one of two responses. One was, my allegiance is to Pharaoh. So whatever he does, that's what I'm going to do. And the other one was a response of logic, which was, I've seen what happened six times now. I'm pretty sure what, this, what that guy says, because that crazy man that walks in here with that stick every time, whatever he says, it happens. So they're like, yes, Pharaoh, can we knock off a little early today? Is it going to be all right? Okay, yes, well, we're for you. We're with you. It's awesome. And then they get out of there and they're like, go put up the sheep, go put up the camels, go put everything up. Get everybody inside. It's going to be devastation that's going to fall in this place. So you begin to see this drawing out. What is the drawing out? It's those who listen to the word of God and those who don't. Let me ask you, which side of that are you on? Jesus told a very simple parable one time. He said, there was a wise man who built his house on the rock. He says that the streams rose. The rains fell and the wind came and beat against that house. And it did not fall because it had the rock as its foundation. And there was a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rains came and the streams rose and the wind beat against that house, it it fell with a great crash. Why? Because it had no foundation. Well, I can't I can relate to that story, Jesus, but what does it mean? Well, he goes on and explains it. He says, let him who has ears, let him hear. The wise man is the one who hears what I say and puts it into practice. The foolish man is the one who, listen, hears what I say, but never puts it into practice. Again, I ask you, which one are you? I mean, you, you come here on Sundays. You, you may listen to sermons, your favorite preacher. it obviously be me later on during the week. You just go back and listen to other stuff. But you listen to whoever it is that you, you love to listen to, read the books that you like to read. Um, maybe you're a part of a small group or a, a group at school, uh, you know, a fellowship of Christian athletes, or maybe you have a Bible study that you're a part of, whatever it may be. You go to these things and you hear God's word over and over again. But the question is not, that, is not, are you hearing God's word? It's, are you responding to it? All of them there that day heard the word of the Lord. But only a few of them responded. And I really believe that in the response of those few Egyptians, you begin to see what was promised to Abraham, that his people would be a blessing to the nations. You see the very small beginnings of that. Why? Why? Because when you go a little bit further into this, when the Exodus actually happens, the Scripture tells us later that a mixed number came out with the Israelites from Egypt. What does that mean? It means many of the Egyptians actually left their home and went with the Israelites and identified as Jews from that point forward. Why? Because they saw the power of their God. And they said, this is the one true God. And they left everything, and they became Jews. They followed after. You know what we find? As you go even further into the Old Testament, you see more and more of people coming from these other people groups to join. Why? Because God's name is being made great. He demonstrates who he is. They see his power, his magnificence, his unbridled sovereignty. And their hearts are drawn God is drawing out all of the people groups coming into this. Now, again, I don't want to destroy my main point here because I'm going to get to it in just a minute. But you see, again, this picture of what today represents that we celebrate and what we find in our passage. I'll get to that in just a second. Look at verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among them, the servants of Pharaoh, again, we're not talking about the Egyptians, but these are people who followed him. They did what they heard Moses do. What about the rest of those guys? Where where did they put their trust? Well, every week we've looked at these plagues. We've said that's an attack on an Egyptian god. This week it's hard to even tell which god they're attacking because there are several that oversee what could be related to this weather phenomenon. There is Shu. Shu is the god of the atmosphere. There is Nut which is the god of peanut allergies. I'm just kidding, it's not that. His, actually, this is a goddess. This is the sky goddess who represented the vaulting sky, right? And then there's Tefnut, who is the goddess of moisture. There is Seth, who is present over the wind and the storm. So these are all the gods that the Egyptians worshipped that controlled the weather. So obviously this is a attack that they cannot start and they cannot stop this. We see from verse 20 that some of Pharaoh's own officials were beginning to break ranks with him. However, those that decided to stand with him and keep their allegiance with him did it really in the face of illogical choices. Again, I want you to think about your own obedience in relation to this verse. Are you obedient to what the Word of God calls you to? Psalm 1 is a great passage to go and just read later on today. I would challenge you to do that. Just go get alone somewhere and read Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 is all about those who are planted by a a tree planted by the rivers of water. Who are those? Those are the righteous. The righteous are the ones that hold to the word of God and are fed or nurtured by it. The ones who waste away are the ones who are disconnected from it. Exodus 9.22 Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth, which would be like lightning going. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Devastating. Can you imagine what that would be like? There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail. Do You see the emphasis there such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Do you see the repetition of that? Verse 18, verse 24, it's saying the same thing. Never since the inception of Egypt has anything like this ever happened. And look at verse 25. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. How miraculous. This again is a picture of God's judgment raining down on the land of Egypt for those who would not listen. And God's sovereign protection for those who are his people. I love how one commentator put it. Let me just read his words. He says this, Even when he was judging Pharaoh for his sins, God had a plan for Egypt's salvation. This plan can be traced throughout Scripture. Jeremiah prophesied Egypt's return to favor. Ezekiel told of the nation's return from exile. Isaiah promised a day when God would say, Blessed be Egypt, my people. And when the Egyptians would acknowledge him as their Lord. These promises were fulfilled. Do you know when it was? On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, and the Egyptians heard what the apostles declared the wonders of God in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and they believed in faith and obedience. Think about that for a moment. You begin to see the salvation of the Egyptians here. And just the response of these few that broke ranks with Pharaoh. They do what anyone else does that comes to faith in Jesus. They hear and they respond to what they heard. They hear what's been spoken. They hear what's been warned. And they respond with action to that warning. Another commentator put it this way. Our response to God is always a matter of the heart. A heart that is not set on his word becomes dead set against his will. By the time this hailstorm was over, Egypt was devastated. Animals were dead. Crops destroyed. Servants dead. This is the first time we've seen the death of people introduced into this story at all. And it's not until Plague 7 that we see the death of any humans. I want to remind you again of what it says in verse 18. Go back and look at that. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very, he- very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And then again, that's repeated in verse 24. Why is that phrase used? Here's why. Are you ready for this? If you go back into Egyptian literature, which you can go get it, any of the you know, libraries around here, and you can go read about it. Do you know what the tagline was for almost every single pharaoh that ruled over egypt whenever he did a big project or whenever he had this great success the words of the pharaoh were very consistent and they would say never since the beginning of egypt until now has they have they ever seen something so creative something so powerful something so successful that was the words they would use to describe their building programs, their successes in war, their successes in finances or economy. They would say, never since then, <clears throat> nor since then till now, has Egypt ever seen this kind of power. And so God takes their very words of the Pharaoh and uses it against them and says, this is going to be devastating. This is gonna be so devastating that never since before or never since after have you ever seen anything like this again. I mean, there's a mockery of using these, these prideful words that every Pharaoh has used from time's inception of the of, of Egypt as a nation. And God uses it saying, I am the one who controls these things. The Egyptians thought their gods controlled it. God demonstrates He controls it. Look at verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hell. So, again, there's that picture of God's protection and God's devastation happening at the same time. Now, there's this beautiful picture because it's not told to us at the very beginning that that's actually the case. In other words, <coughs> excuse me, what we see in the beginning is it doesn't say that there's like a, um, a time when um, <coughs> the. Uh, The Israelites who were in Goshen, like in other words, with the frogs or with the lice and all that, it doesn't tell us they were protected from that. Now, they might well have been, but the scripture doesn't tell us that that's the case. But what we do find is as you get midway through it, it begins to create this distinction. And the distinction gets stronger and stronger as you continue through the story to the point that you could convince yourself, well, last week it talked about, you know, the cattle in Egypt died, the cattle in Egypt didn't. Okay, well, I can understand how a disease could run rampant over here and maybe they're excluded enough, it wouldn't. What about the flies? Well, the flies, you know, we've seen a swarm of flies and we can get an idea. Wow, look at that swarm of flies over there, but there's not really a swarm of flies on us. We can get the idea of that. But now we're getting the idea of hail, hail falling from the sky. Now, how many of y'all remember the hailstorm we had just a few weeks ago? Yeah, my car remembers it. It's got dents all over it. Of course, my car's 10 years old, and it's paid for, so I don't have insurance on it that covers anything like that. So now I have a car uh, that, you know, has hail damage all over it, dents on it, and things like that. So it's, it's a reminder. And I was like, thanks, God. That's a great illustration for the story. I, I see what you're doing here. Thanks for the illustration. Um, but the picture there, again, is we never see that kind of hail around here. I mean, I've lived here my whole life. I don't ever remember that kind of hail. I was out in it in the sense of not out in it, but I was smarter than that, smarter than these people. Um, but I was out in it to see the size of the hail that was coming down. I mean, I saw one that was literally the size, of maybe a little shorter of, a baseball. And it came down. Where I was in this, there was 150 cars that were destroyed. The hail came down and shattered the windshields and the back windshields. And even the side windshields because the hail was coming down such an angle that it tore up the side of the car that was facing the storm as much as it did the top of the car. And that is just here in Alabama in this one little section. Can you imagine if something like that devastating happened to the entire state of Alabama? But it didn't happen anywhere in Georgia or Florida or Mississippi. Can you imagine how you and I would react to something like that? What is behind that kind of phenomenon? That's not natural. And yet that's exactly what happens here. God's favor, God's wrath. Guess what? It gets stronger and stronger as you go through. By the time you get to the ninth plague, it's darkness and light. How do you explain that? It says that darkness was so dark they couldn't see their hands in front of their faces. But yet in Goshen, it was completely bright. They didn't even know there was darkness anywhere else. How can you explain that? There's no way that you can explain something like that. It gets more and more miraculous. And of course, the last one, with the death of the firstborn, gives that greatest distinction. God's death angel comes over Egypt in in wrath, and he hovers over Israel in protection. That's the picture that's being developed there. Look how this continues in verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. (laughs) You think? I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. And then it gives us a little um, a little parenthetical here. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat... And the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Now, why does it give you that parenthetical at the end of it? Why do you care about the harvest season? Well, number one, it's telling you where they are in their harvest season. It's telling you the crops that were destroyed. But even more importantly, it's telling you the crops that weren't destroyed. Why? Well, because your next plague is locusts. And the locusts come and destroy the crops. Where did those crops come from if the hail damaged them all? These are the crops that hadn't come up yet. So again, that's, that's why it's telling you that to set up for the next plague that's coming. Now, I want to focus here on this before we move forward and, and, and conclude today. Pharaoh's heart. Okay, look at, look at his confession here. Although you might look at this and go, wow, he's really starting to come around. I mean, look at that genuine confession. He confessed that he's a sinner. He confessed that he needs Moses to stand on, in the gap for him on his behalf. But... If you just pay attention to that, you kind of have this kind of feel sorry for Pharaoh. But I don't want you to feel sorry for Pharaoh. I want you to really read this critically and see not what he's saying, but what he's not saying. Okay, Let's look at that. Number one, notice that he only confesses to Moses. He never confesses to God. He never says, God, you are the mighty God. You are sovereign. You are creator of the universe. You are in control of everything. I have violated you, I have rebelled against you, and I am indebted to you. He doesn't say that. He says to Moses, hey, I know we lost this one. Can you help me out? Second thing, he acknowledges his sin, but at the same time, he doesn't fear God. Think about that for a moment. Have you ever heard someone say like this? Well, I know I'm not perfect, but you ever heard somebody say that? Have you ever said that? Uh, We do sometimes. I want you to think about what's behind that statement. I know I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. But I'm better than this person. I'm better than that person. I'm better than that group of people. I'm better than the people who live over there or from here or do this or whatever it may be. What are we doing? We're setting ourselves up and against someone else. That's not true confession. That's not confessing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That is like I'm not as bad as the other guy. That's all the confession that is. That's in essence what Pharaoh is doing. Third thing, this was not a complete confession. Look at what he says again. This time, look at verse 27, middle of verse 27. This time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right. He doesn't say, I have been all along, this time I am. I've lost this battle. Actually, you've lost every one of them, Pharaoh. But that's the picture there. It's not a complete confession. And the fourth thing is this. It is confession without repentance. Did you hear me? Think about that for a moment. It's confession without repentance. He was not seeking transformation. He was seeking a reprieve or a reprieve from his consequences. We see this in these last few verses, so let's read those together and kind of bring it all to a close. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now again, I want you to know that God was not confused by this, nor was Moses. If you go back just a few verses, you remember what Moses said to Pharaoh when he said, hey, I'm a sinner. We've sinned, and we need need a reprieve from what's happening around us. And what did Moses say? Listen, I know that you are not telling the truth. You do not fear God. You're just trying to get out of your circumstances. And when you get out of your circumstances, you're going to go back to the same way that you've always been. All right, you ready for application? Going to hurt a little bit. How many of us have been in a desperate situation and we said to God, God, if you just get me out of this, Lord, if you just help me cover up this lie, or you help me in this relationship, or you help me overcome this situation, or you just help me over this disease, this sickness, this problem, whatever it may be. God, if you come through for me, God, I will be your servant. I will do whatever you want. Lord, I will be a missionary to the nations if you get me out of this." And then, of course, the situation gets better, and you're like, Whew. But then you remember that promise that you made, and you say, Lord, thank you for allowing me to be a missionary in my own hometown to all the internationals that shop at Walmart that I come in contact with when I go shopping there at times. You know what I'm saying, right? What we do is we make something fit Where we don't actually have to make a sacrifice or a commitment, we don't have to follow through with it. We make our vow really to ourselves and we fulfill it however we want to. That's when you know there's not true transformation. That's when you know the confession is not real. Confession is always followed, true confession is followed by repentance. Or you could say it this way, true confession is followed by transformation. That's what it's about. How often is Pharaoh's story our own story? It looks like repentance, but it's actually self-protection. So let me ask you this question. How's your heart today? Is there a consistency between your attitude in blessing and in crisis? Listen to what I'm saying there. I'm asking you to really think about this question. When you look at your life when you're experiencing incredible blessing and you look at your life when you're walking through a crisis, does your faith look exactly the same in both situations? Because if it doesn't, there's a lot of growing that you and I need to do. Why? Because it means that our circumstances are determining how strong our faith is and not the word of God. We're not listening to what he says. We're listening to what our circumstances are saying. And we're beginning to doubt or we're beginning to bargain with God or we begin to try and make deals with God. That means we're not listening to him. We haven't heard the word of the Lord and responded with obedience. Listen, Pharaoh heard what God said and he hardened his heart. Coming here doesn't make you a Christian. Going to your Bible study doesn't make you a Christian. The fact that you heard the word of the Lord and you even responded with confession doesn't mean that you're saved. What shows true salvation is repentance. And listen to me. Repentance is not something you do with your mouth. That's confession. That's where people get mixed up. They say, I repented of my sins. You did? Yeah, I confessed them before the church. That's not, wait, that's not repentance. That's confession. Repentance is when after saying it, you walked out there and did it and you are consistent with it. Not perfectly consistent because we all will continue to make mistakes and we'll be drawn back in, but we continued a path or we started a path where we are walking in that consistency or striving for that consistency. Is your confession showing itself in repentance? Let's pray together. God, we thank you